You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. The last few years, there's not a lot of joy anywhere else. Um, Amusement, yes, not joy. Um, uh, One of the things that we realized about joy last week is joy is not necessarily a feeling. It's not just being happy. It's not uh, Pollyanna. I know I'm dating myself. Uh, There was a movie, right? I never saw the movie Pollyanna. How was it? Eh. It's up there with Old Yeller or something like that. I don't know. Was it about the same time period as Old Yeller? I'm thinking, maybe? No? Old Yeller was sad, though, wasn't it? Yeah. Pollyanna, I don't know, always optimistic. No, joy is having that perspective, that ability to look, not just at now, but seeing what the future that God has coming toward us. That's the way the Bible talks about the future, too. It's not that we're going to approach the future, but the future comes toward us. That's called the parousia in Greek, okay? Yeah, I know, a Greek word already. I don't even have a, a slide for that. But, uh, which means the appearing of Christ at the last. He is our future. And that's why Paul could have joy in all sorts of bizarre circumstances. And today we're going to talk more specifically about a couple of them. So we're looking at the fact that Paul talks about joy is the fact that it's coming to get you. Not in a bad way, but it's coming to welcome you in. And joy is that invitation into that perspective that God has about this world. And I'm hoping maybe at the uh, memorial service to share or, or to at least hint at that perspective that many students don't necessarily have right now, but they so desperately need. Okay. Stanley Hauerwas, in fact, said our society is a society today of unbelief. Western culture is devoid of a sense of journey, of adventure, because it lacks belief in much more than the cultivation of an ever-shrinking horizon of self-preservation and self-expression. Don't you kind of see that in the last few years? It's like, all of a sudden, it's less and less and less, but I'm trying to get it, and I'm trying to hold on to it. And so we do things like um, eat dessert first because life's unpredictable, you know? Have you ever heard that one? Or um, we're trying to find ourselves. We're trying to discover ourselves. We're trying to find something in this life that's worth living. But we don't have this long sense of journey and purpose. And I think this was especially difficult during the COVID uh, time period for a number of younger adults who don't have that perspective. Some of us, I saw at least anecdotally, more older people including me being old, okay? But people who have had a little more experience, but also who have a little more foundation under them, could look at COVID and go like, yep, we're going to get through this. We've gone through things before, and we know there's something much more in life than just the next year or two. But most, many people in our society don't have that anymore. And I'm telling you today, that's not who you are whose you are, or the perspective you need. It's not what the Bible, the story of the Bible is a fact that it's, we're going to, ultimately, we know we're going to celebrate. We're going to be filled with wonder and amazement at what God has done. It's going to blow my socks off, man. When we get there, I don't even know what I'm going to do. I don't know if I'm going to fall apart 
or everything's going to come together. I'm, it's just going to be almost unbelievable. It's like that song, Imagine, you know? Can you imagine? I don't know what I'm going to do. But I know it's there, and I know it's coming. I don't care what I do. I know what God has for us. That's what Paul is dealing with. And he's writing this letter of Philippians to a church that is puny and small, maybe even smaller than us, by the way, um, 30 people, 40 people in a city, you know, 50,000. And he's writing from jail, Roman jail. Pretty shocking. So let's read through. We're going to kind of get down to some uh, practical matters in uh, the first chapter of Philippians, now starting at verse 12 and following. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, for which I shall choose, for yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is clear sign to, you, to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Wow, what a text. He's getting very practical in some ways, and yet he still has that long-term perspective, that farsightedness that allows him to live in the circumstances he's in. I think you could almost summarize um, what Paul is saying in this section of the letter by a simple phrase that you've probably heard before, uh, two rules. But the first rule is this, don't sweat the small stuff. Have you heard that before? What is, when people hear, say, don't set, sweat the small stuff, what are they talking about? Minor details. Minor details. Don't worry about that. Yeah, yeah. Paul's calling prison 
and a life sent, uh, maybe a death sentence on his head, as well as a bad reputation among people, a part of the small stuff. What? Okay. So here's the second rule I think that Paul specifically has and Christians have that is very difficult, and that is this. Everything but Jesus is small stuff. I think that's vital for us to have as Christians in this world right now. Everything but Jesus is small stuff. So today, what we're really going to look at is, what is the small stuff Paul's talking about? How can you say it's small stuff? Because, man, I think those were, I wouldn't consider Roman prison a, you know, a minor inconvenience. And then how can I live for the big stuff in life? Okay. So what's the small stuff? So like I said, Paul's not dealing with um, a parking ticket or a bad grade, you know. Uh, He's not even dealing with, you know, he's dealing with Roman prison. By the way, Wikipedia puts it this way. Roman prisons were filthy, poorly ventilated, and were underground. The prisons would be divided into outer and inner areas. The inner parts of the prison were more secure and darker. Prison would not have had individual cells. They would have had groups of prisoners chained together in different rooms. Prisons would oftentimes be very crowded. The prisons were designed to psychologically and physically torture a prisoner into confessing. This was a holding cell before you went before trial, and Paul was in the middle of that. In addition, you didn't get fed in prison. Rome didn't feed prisoners. You had to have people from the outside be willing to come in to bring you food. And so that's why this person, um, this person from uh, Epaphroditus from Philippi came just to care for Paul because they heard of prison. Now, you wouldn't have known any of this from Paul's letter. Did you notice that? He does not make himself into a martyr. Look at me. Oh, it's terrible. Nor a victim. Do you realize that? Do you know what victim complex is? WebMD says it's this. At its core, the victim complex involves someone viewing themselves as a victim of their life events. They often express that bad things always happen to them, claim that they have no control over life, and don't take responsibility. The motives for a victim mentality are often unconscious. So it just comes across. But what comes across with Paul? He says, I'm going to rejoice. What? Does that make any sense? Not really. And yet, Paul says, I'm going to rejoice. I want you to know, brothers, and we'll get into this in the second point, that this has actually turned out for the gospel gets to spread even more. What? That's Paul's perspective. He can have that in the midst of a Roman prison. And on top of it, Paul is even being maligned. While he's in prison, while he's chained, while he can't do much about it, people outside the prison are spreading rumors about him and how terrible he is. I don't know if, like we mentioned last week, Roman culture was an honor-shame culture. That is, your reputation, what people thought of you, your esteem was based on what other people saw and, uh, in you. And therefore, whatever that was, mattered more than anything. And here Paul's in prison, and there are other Christians or other people who are sharing about the gospel, he says, but they're not doing it with right motives because 
they're trying to denigrate him. They're trying to cut him down. They think, if I cut Paul down, that raises me up. Have you ever been around people who think that way? Yeah. Well, it was very common. The Greek philosopher Plutarch actually, back then, talks about this honor-shame culture. And he says, there are some that wouldn't even um, praise anyone else because, he says, they treated praise uh, uh, as though commendation were money. So he feels that he is robbing himself of every bit that he bestows on another. In other words, the pie is this big. There's only so much honor. If I give Paul any honor, it takes it away from me. That happens. Don't sweat the small stuff. Everything but Jesus is small stuff. Wow. Here's the reality. I don't know. In the United States, if you realize this, we're kind of becoming an honor-shame culture. Everything is about your reputation, your brand, how you come across to others. And it matters so much, not just when you're a teenager, when peer pressure starts, but now throughout the rest of your life. And you can be trashed so easily or trolled so easily. Isn't it amazing? And um, I have to look at this for myself as a pastor. Believe it or not, well, you, you can believe it. There's a bit of competition between pastors. A lot. We have an edifice complex. Edifice, that is, my church is bigger than your church. Not edipic. Yeah, not, yeah, you get it. Um, but, uh, you know, and size does matter pastors. I know that sounds bad, but it's true. And it is just terrible. We talked about this before with that whole idea in Papua New Guinea and the tribe and the big yams and whoever could grow the biggest yam. Do you remember that? Some of you do way back when. It's still here. Paul could face that as well. And yet, it's all small stuff, Paul says. And we get so caught up in all the small stuff. We get worried. I get so worried, or I get so obsessed sometimes. What are students saying? Do a, what am I rate my professor? What are they saying? What are other, you, you name it, right? And I have a feeling it's true for you, too. I have a feeling it's true for you, too. So the real question, I think, for us is, OK, Paul, you say it's small stuff, but how in the world can you say it's small? These things do matter. Look, he's not trying to say that prison was eh, nothing, doesn't bother me, no big deal. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that a, a possible death sentence on him isn't a big thing. He's not even saying that his reputation, he doesn't care what anybody else says. Do you realize small is a comparison? In order to see something as small, you compare it to something that's big, right? And here's the problem, I think, that we all face. If there's nothing bigger in your life than your career, then when your performance isn't so good or you don't get a great review, you're going to be devastated. If there's nothing bigger in your life than uh, your reputation, what people say of you, then when you get trolled online, it's going to just tr tr uh, tear you apart. If there's nothing bigger in your life 
than having a comfortable, fun time than when things aren't fun. And everybody's life is filled with times when things are not fun. You're going to be devastated and not know what to do. The reason Paul could look at these giant things is not because he thought he was bigger than them. In fact, Paul would say throughout the scriptures, there are many things that are too big for you to handle. You cannot handle the power of sin in your life, he would say. That's a power that's greater than you, and you are even in bondage to it. I can't even stop doing stuff, Paul would say in Romans chapter 7. You cannot handle the power of death. It's bigger than you are. And I don't care what might be said at the memorial this afternoon. Death is a big deal. It's our enemy. It's even God's enemy. And that's why Paul could say, God has taken on the bigger things than you can handle. And he is bigger than them all. That's why he would finally say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1.21. Because Jesus is the one who took on the biggest things in this world that I couldn't handle. You can say sin, death, and the devil. The evil works that are out there, the, the malevolent power that wants to destroy and cause chaos in this world, and we see it all over the place. It's bigger than you. You can't handle it. The power of sin in your own life, the fact that you keep doing the things you don't want to do, you just don't stop. You can't stop thinking egotistically. At least I can't. It's bigger than you. And death itself, it's way bigger than you. But Jesus is the one who takes them on. Jesus is the one who takes all of these things on himself. He is the one who comes into this world as uh, Paul will write into the Corinthians in his second letter to them, He who knew no sin, Jesus who had nothing to do with it, became sin. He took it on himself. He became not just a sin or sinful. He took on all of sin and all of its power and all of its destructive forces. And he became sin upon the cross. And when he died, it was destroyed. It's power over you. And death itself is defeated and by the power of the resurrection. And so Paul knows, even in the middle of a prison where someone else is controlling his destiny at this point in time, that the Roman government is in charge in a lot of ways, somebody bigger than that is really in charge. He doesn't sweat the small stuff, not because it's small, but because it's so much, it's puny in comparison to Jesus Christ. And that's why he can say, even in this text, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It's an amazing little word there for advanced here. Um, it's the Greek word pro uh, kope. Kope means to cut. And so what, um, what's interesting is Paul is saying, yeah, prison would be something that could really destroy anybody. You, I could be sitting here thinking, oh my gosh, I'm stuck in prison. I can't really. I only got like three people to talk to. 
I'm not in front of a large crowd. I don't have, you know, a stadium full of people. I want to share the gospel. He goes, no, this is how God is setting it up. This has actually advanced the gospel. Because now I, I have a captive audience in this prison. They have to listen to me. They can't walk away. And even the imperial guard that's chained to me 24-7, one soldier after another is hearing who Jesus is and why I'm here and what it's about. This is actually advancing the gospel. Paul would say in, uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians, he would say, but God has chose the, what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know, God didn't, if you look at the whole biblical story, you don't find God taking on uh, the superpowers of Egypt or Babylon and adopting them and saying, hey, I'm going to use you guys. Instead, he takes this puny little slave nation called Israel, and through him he's going to show through them, he's going to show his glory. And time and again, if you read the stories in the Bible, you will find God chooses the least likely to succeed. The last place individuals, the weakest links, to do his mighty work. And so God is in prison with Paul. And God is using even that circumstance to advance the gospel. I recall in high school, I um, listened to a song by a Christian artist named Phil Keggy, who took an anonymous poem, and I think it just fits. I still come back to this poem again and again for the last I don't know how many years, because there's so much truth in it. I'm not sure who wrote it, but uh, I think you'll uh, appreciate what's going on with it. It's called Disappointment. Disappointment, his appointment. Change one letter, then I see that the thwarting of my purpose is God's better choice for me. His appointment must be blessing, though it may come in disguise. For the end from the beginning open to his wisdom lies. Disappointment, his appointment, no good will he withhold. From denials oft we gather treasures of his love untold. Well, he knows each broken purpose leads to fuller, deeper trust, and the end of all his dealings proves our God is wise and just. Disappointment, his appointment. Lord, I take it then as such, like clay in the hands of a potter, yielding wholly to thy touch. My life, life's plan is thy molding. Not one single choice be mine. Let me answer unrepining. Father, not my will, but thine. It's all small stuff because of Jesus. In comparison to Jesus, who took on all the powers of sin, death, and hell upon himself, so none of those big things can destroy you, thwart you, or get in the way, but now are just tools in his hands. How do you live for this big stuff? I think, first of all, we have to realize this. 
Will Willimon put it well, I think. He says, we are forever getting confused into thinking the scripture is mainly about what we are supposed to do rather than a picture of who God is. You need more than anything today a picture of who your God is and how amazing what Jesus did for you, what Jesus does for you, how your God loves you, cares for you. He's the one running the verbs. Remember last, a couple of weeks ago, um, we did the whole uh, sermon on King David in 2 Samuel 7. And in it, there were 23 verbs in that section, all of them that God was doing for David and nothing about David. And that's what it means to be a man after his own heart, I believe, is letting God be God and letting God do what he has done for us. And Paul, in prison, realizes, hey, this life isn't just a, it's not about me. It's not about what I can accomplish. It's not about what I can do. It doesn't matter. Jesus is the one who matters. And because of that, he's using this circumstance. I know it. Somehow, I can't see it right now, but I know it because I know where everything's headed, and he's going to make this an advancement for the gospel. I mean, can you imagine if we didn't have the letter of Philippians? I don't think Paul realized what his letters would become for millions, billions of people in this world. God did more by him writing a letter from prison than I could you know, do in a lifetime of trying to serve the poor, even though those things are good. You live for the big stuff when you start realizing God's great love for you. When you have a God-sized vision of how he sees you, how he knows you, how he cares about you, how he has conquered for you sin, death, and the devil itself. And so that's why Paul at the end of this letter says, hey, no matter where you are, don't worry. God has taken care of it. Now just live into what God has done for you. He says it this way, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, that word there for worthy of the gospel of Christ, it's actually the word in Greek, politoiomai, politics, polis, metropolis. You've heard those words kind of before, right? That's from that word polis in Greek. And it means, politoiomai means to live as a citizen. To live as a citizen. And he says in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven and from which we have a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. Do you see that farsighted perspective in that passage? That's what's happening. There's where you're going. You're already a citizen of heaven right here on earth. Now live into that. I don't know if you know, um, I think you realize this. It's been said, you know, um, the largest group, the largest, quote, religious, whatever uh, trends that are happening is more and more people are dropping out of the church, especially younger and younger generations, and joining what's called the religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. Nuns, none of the above. And some people have said, it's so sad. So many people are leaving because they don't believe anymore. I don't think that's the case. I was listening to a podcast this weekend by Russell Moore and David Brooks from the New York Times. And they said, people aren't leaving the church because they don't believe. 
They're leaving the church because they think that we don't believe anymore. We're not living like citizens of heaven. <laughs> we're not seeing our lives. Um, we're, we're thinking the things that really matter are the things here. We've got to make sure we get our way at the voting booth or in the business. Or we're putting ourselves first in so many ways. So they see, and they see churches that are self-serving and building up their little kingdoms. And people, we've gotten too political and too judgmental and too hypocritical so that that's why people are leaving. That's what they're saying. And Paul says, you're already a citizen of heaven. Start living into that. Love those around you. Care about them. See an eternal perspective in their life as well. And live knowing that Jesus has made all the difference for you. He's the biggest thing in your life. You can live in such a way that your life makes no sense to anyone else unless Jesus is real. Do you understand that? That's the best compliment I could ever get or you could ever get, I think, is like, your life makes no sense. Your life makes no sense at all. But for the, if Jesus isn't real, your life makes no sense. If Jesus is real, it falls into place that you're living the way you are. That's what needs to start happening within the church. I think we need a renewal of the church before we worry about society on those matters. Not saying, I don't pray for those things, but we got to start here with the people of God. Um, one of my probably most memorable times that I had traveling abroad in Europe was in 1987 when I and two other friends of mine were able to uh, travel to East Germany when it was still East Germany and stay with Erhard and Inge Rosa Paust in southern East Germany in an area called Saxony at the time. And it was like stepping back into 1945 when you crossed that border. Um, first of all, the train from southern Germany, you th went through a checkpoint with, you know, um, German shepherds everywhere, mirrors looking everywhere, um, everybody checking your passport, to getting into the town where we were staying and having to turn ourselves into the Stasi to register to make sure they knew exactly what we were doing and where we were all the time. And yet, I had an American passport. And that meant I was still free. I couldn't quite do everything I wanted. But I have to worry what was going to happen to me, because in three days, I was leaving East Germany, coming back west, and everything was fine. Your citizenship, you already have that passport. Your citizenship is the kingdom of God. And you are free to live, even within the confines of this world right now, for that kingdom, to bring a piece of heaven to earth everywhere you go. And that is what Paul is doing in prison. You are invited into the joy that you're going to have for eternity to live it right now because you're going to be experiencing that God forever. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much um, for this perspective from Paul, that you would put him in prison, Lord, for... <laughs> for the sake of the gospel, and yet use him there in ways to meet people he would have never met 
to share the gospel with people in such need. And through his letter, Lord, to share that gospel with us. We thank you, Lord, that it was an advancement of the gospel. And we see that as a result after his life in the life of the church and the explosion of Christianity across Europe and the world. Lord, today we know there are setbacks. There are Christians in prison, Christians under persecution all over the world, Lord. And yet you're using that to show the authenticity of that gospel and that good news for so many people. Help us to bless those, Lord, who would even persecute us, to love those who would even hate us, to share Jesus with everyone and everything that we do, and to have that joy and that confidence because Jesus is bigger than anything that we could ever face, Lord, that we can say with Paul to live as Christ and to die as gain. Lord God, this day uh, we grieve and mourn with a number of people here. Um, first of all, with Vicki Johnston, whose um, mother passed away, and also with Dave Bulow, whose father passed away. We pray your comfort and peace on them, that they may celebrate um, the, your good news for them and their lives and their loved ones. We lift up uh, Graham McGrath's family, Lord. Um, his friends, and all the students who knew him or are touched and hurt and grieving right now. We pray, Lord, that through other Christians on this campus, Lord, there are many Christians, faculty, staff, and students, Lord, that we can share your good news and be walking beside um, anyone who's grieving, Lord, to show them the joy of eternity in some way. Lord, um, we pray your healing on many uh, who need your touch, know you, um, and even in the midst, Lord, to fill them with your joy. So we lift up to you, Laurel, as she continues your healing from fractures and for, um, for, for Dick uh, Grisky, Lord, and his migraines, and for anyone in their needs right now, Lord. We pray your will is done in their lives. May you be glorified in all of our lives. Uh, would you please use um, our campus ministry this year to bless our leadership, Lord, and all the students who are attending right now, Lord, that you'd instill in them such a joy and such a hope and such courage, Lord, and such knowing that they are so loved and so wanted by you, Lord, that nothing is going to ever take you from the, your, them from your hands and that they can live that, Lord, in the midst of all the, that goes on at a university. Lord, we're going to offer our, um, well, our tithes in a moment. We pray that you would use them for your kingdom. And Lord, as we prepare for receiving the gift no greater than you yourself as you give with uh, bread and wine, Lord. We pray that you would commune with us in such a way, but that you would also um, open us up to receive you. Forgive us, Lord. Create in us a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within us. Do not cast us from your presence, but draw us into the joy of your salvation. Because we know, Lord, we are not just broken, but we have been sinful willfully, Lord, and we ask for your forgiveness 
for all the things that we've done, the thoughts, the things that we didn't do, Lord. Confident that you will forgive our sins and cleanse us from that unrighteousness. And therefore, prepare us to receive your joy and your goodness and to live that out even more this day. So we commend all these things into your care this day, confident you hear us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.